0: Broadcasting live from Shady Side, this is the Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Taya and I'm joined by my witches,
1: Mila, Louisa, and Zebra.
0: And this episode's theme is summer horror. We are going to be talking about the new Netflix trilogy Fear Street directed by Lee Yaniak. So if you haven't already seen this new release, please go watch it because we're going to be giving away a lot of spoilers. But before we get into it, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast.
2: The Fear Street Trilogy has been adapted from books by R.L. Stein. Each film is a slasher and takes place in a notorious town called Shadyside, where every few years, ordinary people mysteriously turn into serial killers. As local legend has it, these incidents are believed to be caused by the spirit of Sarah Fear, who cursed the town back in 1666 when she was hanged for witchcraft. The continuous violence generates great tension between the less fortunate Shady Siders and the comparatively privileged inhabitants of the town over Sunnyvale. The core storyline centers on a group of teenagers led by Dina, who is on a mission to save her recent ex-girlfriend Sam from suffering a similar fate of the cursed Shady Siders before her. Enjoy.
0: since this episode is all about summer horror have you guys ever been to summer
3: camp i went to summer camp every year because nobody wanted to watch me during the summer so (laughs) i would go to like week-long like sleepaway camp i never went for the whole summer but i went for like many weeks out of the summer like separate weeks um and that's super scary and watching this movie made me realize i was watching a second movie and i was like where are all the adults? Like, why is there like two adults at this camp, but it's mostly like teenagers in charge of other children? I was like, when I went to camp, there was adults. But now I'm starting to think that I was just small and that the adults were teenagers <laughs> and I thought they were yeah. grown ups.
1: They were probably teenagers. That was so dangerous. That's all right. <laughs> like we
3: were out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs>
1: You know how, like, no one trusts teenagers with anything, like, in America? I don't know why all of a sudden, except for driving. I don't know why they're, like, suddenly when it comes to camp, like, you know what? You're capable. Take care of these (laughs) minors. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do a good job.
0: Then I was a counselor when I was in high school because I needed money. But it was very small children. I was, like, 15 to 16. And it was uh, a sleepaway camp, so um, that was not safe.
3: Camp on its own, regardless of if there's a serial killer, is kind of horrific. Like, showering at camp is, like, you at your most vulnerable. Like, it makes sense why there's always slashers. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to run to? The lake? No.
1: You guys have a very different experience of, like, of camp. On my summer camp, they were just like, we challenge you to kiss as many it wasn't even summer camp it was school camp oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right <laughs> that was not the place to stop let me continue we challenge you to kiss as many banana slugs oh. as possible Ew. i mean we did stuff like that too <laughs> apparently your lips were the only part that didn't like make them burn because of the salt and i was like i was like in it to win it so i kissed 18 of those suckers
3: Did your camps have any ghost stories? Like ghost stories associated with the camp, but also
1: just like general spooky stories. I don't remember. I don't think so. I'm sure we did have a night around the campfire, but they just made us do like theater (laughs) and like tell ghost stories. That in and of itself was a horror story.
3: Wait, do y'all have any ghost stories associated with like your hometowns? Oh, I actually do. Because my hometown was um,
0: my hometown was one of the only towns that was not burned to the ground during the march of the sea during the civil war so um all of like the plantations and stuff are intact and so uh there was like a girl in my town who would always have halloween parties or her family's plantation home which is very problematic um but uh everybody would always say like i never went because i don't really go to people plantation homes (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> i don't judge i accept that choice you didn't need
0: to explain that.
1: yeah you did that too.
0: <laughs> my childhood best friend went and she was saying like um at night like the girls uh shutters and stuff on the cabins the slave cabins were like moving and there was like all types of weird noises outside and then my family growing up had like land that we owned and it was like deep out in the country but it was very close to all the plantations and they would always do like on Halloween because all of my relatives like lived on this lot of land where on on the street or whatever they would always like throw a Halloween party for everyone and they would do this hayride and every time my mom would say like don't go because my mom grew up out there <laughs> and um she had tons of paranormal experiences and the kids would come back like terrified and shaking because oh, yeah. there was like an old slave church that was there and several graves and stuff in the woods as well like you would sometimes like see shadows and stuff if you drove at night on certain nights and stuff it was it was a very creepy area and my grandma still lives out there and she constantly has ghost nightmares and stuff it's not oh, <laughs> it's not my oh thing my.
1: I mean, that's not like a fun paranormal interaction.
0: No, it's not fun, Louisa.
1: When it, the legacy is like that.
3: Uh, I'm from Georgia, so most of the paranormal stuff is not good. Yeah. I mean, that's true in New Orleans, but I feel like they have ghost tourism. Savannah's
0: also <laughs> super haunted as well. But ghost tours really? like not really my thing. Yeah. Savannah
3: has like a ton Why? of I ghost tours. I wonder that is. I wonder why some places are more haunted than other places.
0: I think it just depends on, like, what legacy is there. Like, a lot of places were, like, burned to the ground during different periods of time or were destroyed and rebuilt. But, like, the stuff that's, like, real old, like, New Orleans and Savannah and stuff that have pretty much been in the same condition for, like, hundreds of years. Also Charleston. Like, in Charleston, you're supposed to, like, paint the ceilings of your... I think your porch blue to ward off the spirits.
3: I think there's, like, certain, like land that also like traps spirits or like even like paranormal stuff easier. Like I feel like new Orleans has something going on Appalachia. I don't know about like parts outside of the U S but I'm sure there are many places where like Mm -hmm. there's like epicenters of activity, like not even just ghost activity, but like people have all sorts of like mythical creatures who they see out there like
1: lots of magic is practiced out there. So it just sticks. I
3: don't know. Wait, Louisa, you had a hometown one too.
1: Um, Mine's, like, more of, like, a stupid local legend It has no kind of depth. This was just, like, there was an abandoned house, and apparently, like, um, it was a bit run down on the inside, and people, like, made up this local legend, because the bath water was black, so they made up this legend that, like, this woman lived there, and she went crazy, and she drowned her baby, and she kept a diary, so if you go in the house at night, you can read the diary, and then she'll get ya. Mm. More hash-slinging (laughs) slats, He gets ya <laughs> wait what are your personal ghost stories um I don't know why because my every time I tell my grandma she's like but no one's died in this house um but like I it should be happening there I was mm. like so when I moved like from America and I was younger I didn't I don't know I'd just be up in the middle of the night for no reason not like jet lag I just mean like I was just thinking thinking about the life that I had <laughs> so while I was like meditating on that I'd hear so much shit like just like footsteps behind like once I was like getting a cup of tea bringing it upstairs and I heard footsteps like right behind me looked around nothing was there I'd have like that like horrible not even horrible but you know like sixth sense when you're like on a train and you look up and someone's staring at you and you knew that someone was looking at you it'd be like that but no one was there and I'd be home alone then in the middle of the night, once I heard like old timey music. I heard pots and pans. What do you mean I old heard, timey like, music, like old Frank Sinatra's playing. Um, that's immediately where my mind went.
2: It was
0: like
1: like I don't know, like twenty. It sounded like jazzy, like twenties. Yeah, know. Okay. they were
0: trying to put you on, show you some good music.
2: It was Ryan Gosling from La La Land, <laughs> <laughs> showing you some jazz. <laughs> that's a too oh, haunting. God.
1: But it was like really, really faint. And then it was, like, mostly I could hear really loudly, like, pots and pans banging and, like, a low rumble of conversation. Like, it sounded like there was, like, a huge party going on, but, like, I was listening through, like, three walls, but I knew it was downstairs, and this, I could hear things running up and down the stairs constantly.
3: Oh, my gosh. That's, like, surround sound.
1: It wasn't, like, so loud. It was, like,
2: yeah, it, it was
1: just, like, it was kind of, like, faint, and then the pots and pans were quite loud, and the footsteps were quite loud. Um, So I was just, like... I was literally in bed like well what the fuck I was like I'm terrified what is happening and I knew there was no one home because like yeah and then except for me my grandma my mom who were sleeping so I was gonna go into my mom's room and be like mom like are you hearing this (laughs) like I think I'm going insane so I opened up my bedroom door and like as soon as I opened the door like it all stopped and it was like pin drop quiet and I was like Sick. Guess I'll just go to bed then, because my mom works and there's no way I can wake her up and be like, "Hey, mom, I heard a noise," without her being pissed off with me. <laughs> and then I thought I was just crazy, but then my friend Taylor came to stay, and um, she was had jet lag, and she was like up in the middle of the night, and we were sleeping downstairs because it was Christmas, so the house was like full and uh she was like in the morning i was like how'd you sleep she's like i didn't really sleep and this house is scary as fuck i heard pots and pans i heard what? music i heard people i heard thing- people running up and down the stairs and i was like and i hadn't told her
3: damn
0: yeah it's chill that they were just having like a little party and
3: not like anything scary i'm trying to think of like what like why was somebody throwing a party and didn't, just didn't want to tell y'all <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs>
1: no it wasn't like because it was like oldie music it wasn't like what if
0: you guys actually had like a little mini family of like little um little like secret like of Arietti like little tiny humans who like lived in the wall and like they'd be like trying to cook food at night and stuff i used to think that my toys came to life at night because of toy story and then toy story yeah toy story and chucky like very close together very different
2: (laughs) experiences of
0: alive toys so was like if I'm mean to the toys then they turn into Chucky so like I would every day when I would get like done playing with my dolls i like brush their hair and like gently place them <laughs> and, like my doll organizing bins and like put it away and my mom was like why do you like put them down like they're in a casket or something and I was like I don't want them to be angry <laughs> and I want them to be angry and kill oh me goodness. and I was like in hindsight that probably sounds very scary but I think small children always say scary shit
1: yeah i feel like small children are open up open more to the veil because i feel like things just happen that's super true but then you get all those youtubers who like go in there with their green camera being like this is the hauntest place in america nice well like sorry you know night vision like they'll be like this yeah. is a hauntest place in america. yeah we're gonna measure ghost electricity
3: The Monstrous Feminine is on Apple Podcasts, so please leave us a five-star review. If you do, you just might get a shout-out on our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week, is Maggie from Costa Rica, and they said, Wholesome podcast. Wow, okay. I love this podcast, 10 out of 10. (laughs) This is my second time hearing every single episode. That is so nice that you would listen not once, but twice. But Wholesome, are you listening Carefully enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We wish you a hot girl summer. Or hot person summer. Hot them summer. Hot them summer.
0: And I hope that you have a great day, week, month, year. A lot better than everyone in the movies that we're gonna discuss
3: we are also on patreon for one pound a month you can gain access to our discord for three pounds a month you can get to see what we cut from our episodes in our extended episode and for five pounds a month you get all that plus a bonus episode if you enjoy our podcast please support us any contribution helps kiss kiss fall in love xoxo xoxo Gossip gossip girl
1: Fear Street Part 1, 1994, occurs just after another Shadyside murder spree, this time in a mall, which reignites rumors of Sarah The story follows Dina, a young girl from a broken home who has recently parted from her girlfriend Sam after Sam moved to Sunnyvale. During a heated argument about Sam's new boyfriend, Sam accidentally stumbles upon the bones of Sarah A curse is enacted, and the murderous ghosts of previous Shadyside killers reincarnate to hunt her down. Dina, Sam, Dina's younger brother Josh, and Dina's two friends Simon and Kate work together to battle these evil forces while desperately searching for a way to lift the curse. Look! Some gal killed a bunch of people at the mall last night. Holy shit. Another shady side tragedy. Fits the narrative, right? Sarah Fier's back. Christ, not you too. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun?
0: Off the bat, I'd say that this is my second favorite of the three. (laughs) I think it sets the tone for where the series is going really well. In this one, I feel like the gore is the most obvious and the most seen because obviously in the second part there were children in the camp and they could not show children being murdered on camera which i deeply appreciate but also i think they should have just aged up the people at the camp i think one thing i'm gonna i guess hop into immediately because i think we've had a lot of other discussions about female directors and female film writers i think that this is a great example of great female filmmaking the way that yeah. uh the characters are very dynamic i think she did a great woman loving woman love romance i love that she made kate be like a cheerleader valedictorian and a drug dealer and also like very badass and fiery <laughs> i love that it wasn't just like one-dimensional defiant female character i, I really think she done a great job with that And also just making sure that even though the people in the movie were not teenagers, they also didn't feel like they were uh, cast as adults so that she could sexualize teenagers. Like, they were still very much written like teenagers. They dressed like them. They spoke like teenagers at the time period. So I am going to give her 100% credit for that. That was very well done. Other people should take (laughs) notes.
1: You know, when we were talking about Suspiria, and we were talking about how it's very easy not to sexualize woman like and we talked about the Mm -hmm. locker room scene and how that was like a good example i thought this was like a good example in that opening sequence of like the slasher and i was like this is how you would do a slasher if you weren't being overtly sexual even though it's like i think consciously corny and very much like i think a nod to scream um just with the mask and the fact that it's i think it was just trying to emulate drew barrymore's iconic death as well but um yeah i kind of thought like this is a great non-sexualized or not overtly sexualized sequence. So I appreciated that.
0: Also, all of these are, I believe they're meant to be rated R. She did say in an interview that she wanted them to be rated R's because when she was 14 and 15, like picking up the Fierce three books felt edgy to her. And so she wanted to make sure mm. that she like embodied the edginess and the subverseness of how the books felt, even though the plot was drastically changed.
1: Is she an Aquarius? Actually,
3: let me check. I think she wrote the list. Can I can I back up? Has did anybody read R.L. Stein as a young person? I did. I used I to read not. the The Reader Be Rare.
0: Okay. The Reader beware you choose the scare ones. I used to love those. And also oh, just yes. all his books in general. But that was like a, oh my god, we have the same birthday. <laughs> she is an Aquarius.
3: Wow.
1: That actually You're joking. That tracks. I love that. <laughs> Astrology is real. Astrology is real.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's born on February 1st. Cindy, you love girl. Love you, Lee.
1: Oh my god. That's so funny. I don't
3: know if you, y'all have, like, watched The New Eye, Carly, or, like, any of these mm-hmm. remakes of things where they're trying to make, like, the adult version of what you consumed as a kid. And I actually, like... I don't like a pure reboot that's, like, meant for children because mm-hmm. they're not going to have the nostalgia mm-hmm. factor. So what's the point in making a reboot or, like, a, yeah. or even a book to movie adaption of something that's meant for an age group that didn't consume it at the time that it was popular? But, like, right. it, things like this where it sort of, like, grows up with you where it's, like, at least I see what you're saying about the mm-hmm. intentional corniness and I love that. But, like, the violence, at least in the first one, was quite Violet. It was Can really gory. It was it? shocking. And I think that it was shocking because it was like contrasted with like this like corny dialogue or like the, the like 90s aesthetic. Like it sort of like yeah. lulls you into this thing of like, okay, it's going to be like, oh, maybe somebody will get act to the head and like, oh, we'll have like a jump scare here and there. But I was like, oh my God. Like I'm scared. Like I'm scared. Why am I so like me? <laughs> and I think it was just because it was like shockingly gory in the way that a slasher should be and I was surprised because like here I am at my big age thinking that like slashers don't get to me anymore that I'm like big and tough and that I can't be surprised by it so in that way it felt like reading R.L. Stein books because I was genuinely scared when I read them as a kid and so then I was like expecting i'm like okay but like those books are for babies so i'm big and i'm not a baby and i'm g- not gonna get scared by it so i like i appreciated that the direction sort of like grew up with the reader if you like
1: read them as a kid i was also super shocked because i felt like just the general style of it i know i don't want to necessarily equate a female director's work with her husband's because i feel like it would be it has its own kind of spin but it had that kind of stranger thing style of like The aesthetic and like the kind of core group of teenagers which obviously yeah yeah and obviously stranger things is doing that because it was paying homage to like the earlier 80s 70s um horrors that came before but so but i think it was kind of like another kind of reworking of that and then it goes in a completely different direction and i felt like that nostalgia that it was like pulling on led me into such a false sense of security to the point where we literally had kate battling the monster and she was like facing the meat grinder and i was like oh yeah this is a good one i see what you've done there nice touch how is she gonna get out of this who's gonna save her and then she full-on gets murked i was like shocked i was like i was shooken. yeah i was to my core like because <laughs> i thought it was gonna be like it or something where you have that core friendship group that doesn't die like shit will happen but like not no one at least the younger version of the children yeah. of it don't die I was like nothing's gonna happen they'll be fine and at this point they've escaped death so many times like so many like assaults they've like gotten out of and then she just dies like that and then I'm like always serious and the
3: character building leads to like how shocking the death is I'm like I did not think that you made this person like so like lovable or so hateable or so whatever like they gave them so much just to like
1: Mm -hmm. really have everyone die that is what modern slashers are missing.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think modern slashers definitely lean into like not developing the characters, so that you don't feel connected to the deaths. And I definitely mm-hmm. think that is a, a drawback because when you do connect with the characters, everything is so much more interesting. Um, and that kind of brings me to like the point that I think Shady Side is so. Interesting to watch because I feel like everyone there was pretty much like a person of color or someone from like a marginalized group or a broken home or something versus like Sunnyvale is like all the white rich kids and everything. And um, some I feel like it's an interesting thing that weaves into the story throughout all of the things. Take a shot every time I say interesting. Um, <laughs> when you see how they're using like a generational curse. Of the whole town as a way to talk about generational trauma from um, not having the privileges that someone else has. But I don't know, something I think about like them being sacrificed and like this curse when it was actually meant for Sam and also Sam's ability to go between Shadyside and Sunnyvale as a white woman kind of feels like how white women can mm-hmm. go in and out of like oppressive states and also be benefited by white privilege.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think with, I mean, this is jumping ahead to part three, but with the whole town curse um, through the good family um, and their pact with the devil. I think, whereas we talked about in Black Christmas, the remake of Black Christmas, how that secret society, oogie boogie spooky metaphor for like (laughs) the sort of white male chokehold on society. Like it didn't work and it, it like belittled the various structures that like surround it and are still held up to this day but i did feel like these films with the like you mentioned the generational curse of the town like that it just like landed really well i think ty you mentioned that the director is married to like ages ago in the group chat you mentioned she was married to the one of the creators of stranger things
0: also side note they're both Aquariuses as well
2: <laughs> That's a lot of aquarius energy I forgot watching this, that one, that it was a female director and two, like, the connection to Stranger Things. Actually, I might have been aware of the connection to Stranger Things.
1: Also, the actors. Yeah, yeah. and we
2: talked about it in a group chat. You can't
1: avoid thinking about it when they have the same actors and the same yeah, aesthetic. You're right.
2: But I feel like these films then did make me consider, like, how far filmmakers should use nostalgia to ground their stories and in what ways it works and times where it becomes like too much of a crutch. Part one is probably my favorite out of the three. I was under the impression that they were going to get progressively better. And unfortunately, it didn't happen for me. And like Louisa, you mentioned, I don't want to compare her to her husband and Stranger Things. I think it's an unfair comparison, but I think Stranger Things does a better job utilizing nostalgia Part three, where we then are not situated in the 80s or the 90s, we are in the 1600s without any nostalgia. I doubt anyone has nostalgia for that time period. Maybe there are people. I
1: love the 1600s.
2: (laughs) It's cottagecore. Cottagecore, exactly. I found that part unwatchable and it wasn't just (laughs) the terrible Irish accent. I could have forgiven that, but I found it so fucking boring. I was bored out of my mind. It kind of made me reevaluate the whole film series However, I do like a lot of the core narrative and how it's threaded through, like with the generational curse and like the dichotomy between Shady Side and Sunnyvale. Like that's that's done really well. But there are some moments in these films where I'm like, I could close my eyes and block my ears for 10 minutes and I would not miss anything. This
0: movie was uh, originally not meant for Netflix. I think it was under Fox. And Netflix wanted it. Uh, I read in an interview where she was talking about it. But it got tied up in that Disney-Fox acquisition period where uh, Disney purchased 21st Century Fox. And at that point, uh, they were still making the movie and going through the production process. So I kind of do feel like by the time they got to 1666 some of that maybe it may have affected the aesthetic. I actually like mm-hmm. 16, 1666 the best because I think it really did seal off everything really well, tied up all the loose ends, and also kind of gave a, a Easter egg for a possible trilogy next year or later on or another additional movie later in the year or something. But um Disney took a lot of stuff out of that acquisition once that was greenlit. But Netflix apparently was like very enthusiastic about this from the beginning and really wanted it. And so when everything fell apart, they got it. So I I imagine like with acquisition stuff and everything, even though she she didn't disclose it, I imagine that there was probably like increases and de- decreases in budgets and all types of stuff like that that also was going home behind the scenes. So I can see why like the time jump didn't quite land.
1: I was just going to say, I don't think we're unfair for comparing it, or you're unfair, Mila, for comparing it to Stranger Things because I do feel like you can't be married to somebody and then also make something with a really similar aesthetic, at least in the first one and kind of the second one, and and then the end of the last one. And you can't like cast like, a few of the same actors without making a comparison. Like, I think it's, it's, it's great in its own right and we should talk about it in its own right, but I don't think we'd be, like, so guilty for saying like, you have to compare them yeah. if you're gonna make them so similar in that respect.
0: I disagree with you guys. I do think it's unfair to compare them. Mainly because I feel like there are a lot of like, director couples who do use similar actors, just cause I'm like, once you work with someone, they're kind of like in your work circle. They probably meet your partner on set at some point. And so if you're acquainted with those actors, it is a high chance that you'll use them in your work whenever you make something. So I think we should actually leave out comparing her husband's work. And also, I don't think all of Stranger Things gets better as it goes either.
3: I've never seen Stranger Things. I mean, I have. I've seen a couple of episodes from the first season and I thought it leaned way too heavily on the aesthetics. Like I was just, it felt like gimmicky, the the like 80s thing. So like, that's why I never continued with it because it wasn't scary enough to keep me engaged. It didn't necessarily feel like an age group of characters that I felt like engaging with at like in my young adult life. Like, I, I don't know. and it just felt like, like, because this one jumps time so drastically, like seventies is very, very different from 94. I, I, I appreciated the variety like a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think that like, that is what broke, broke me out of that like annoyance with like the gimmicky aspect of like I'm doing a period piece. Like the last one felt like a period (laughs) piece and like, and like gimmicky, but like the other two, I don't know. I thought like it, it did, it added to this, to like the aesthetic that you liked Mila from the first one. And I appreciated it in this one. And it made sense because like, yeah, that's when a lot of slashers were made. That's how those Mm -hmm. movies were. So it felt like, like it was with purpose as opposed to like a letter, a love letter to like a particular decade. I like the gimmick. (laughs)
1: Because <laughs> I, I like it. I like that 80s gimmick. That's what gets me. That's what I liked about Stranger Things is what I like about this.
0: The only thing where I don't like aesthetic being so heavily relied on is... I know people are going to get mad at me about this, is Euphoria. I feel like they heavily lean on aesthetic over plot. That is... that is... A, that is something I will stand behind is style over substance.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. No, I agree with Euphoria. It definitely... it leans way too heavily into it. And it's also, like, to know function because they're teenagers why are you like trying to romanticize their life to that end I think me and Louisa are just big fans of Stranger Things and that's why we're like I love it it's the best thing but I agree with you both in that I think it's fair to compare them because they're essentially working within the exact same style like they are at some point identical Um, but also she is a filmmaker a very good filmmaker in her home right so that's how we should talk about her so maybe uh, like instead of comparing Stranger Things like Another filmmaker I think of who's really great at doing nostalgia without it overpowering the storytelling is Richard Linklater with like Everybody Wants Some in the 80s. Their period mm-hmm. pieces, I find that so funny using that for anything that's like not, not yeah. Jane Austen. <laughs> they have a really strong sense of place and they are sometimes gimmicky, like very, like less so than mm-hmm. Stranger Things, but they do like forefront a lot of the decades, like most sort of stereotypical traits and the, the music. But it's like the characters come first and the story comes first. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes in this film, I was going to say these films, but for the first one, I don't think I had enough time to really care about the characters as much as I wanted to. There was too much time spent like on the violence, which actually like I think was handled really well. As a slasher, it was really cool, but I don't know if I cared very much for them. I don't know if I cared about them as much as I thought they wouldn't die.
1: Like, I think
3: it was just, like, given a lot of information about them. Yes. For them to die. I feel
0: like I cared about them. But I also feel like, I don't know if you guys are going to agree, but, like, the romance aspect of it was, I think, well done in the way that it wasn't done from, like, a straight gaze. Like, blue is the warmest color. Where they had to have all the weird, unnecessary sex scenes. Usually, I feel like, especially in films or TV shows with any type of, like, queer romance i feel like they really lean heavily on sex for some reason actually we all know why um even (laughs) to like the point of like i mean i love scum and uh like degrassi and all that type of stuff and all those teen shows i will watch them because i love a good dramatic teen show but um i do feel like they really lean on making queer romances centered around sex i will say though like Kate and Sam's romance was kind of infuriating at times.
1: Kate and Sam. Dina and Sam.
0: My bad. My bad. Dina and Sam's romance was like infuriating at times. And I had to remind myself, like, this is how a teenager would act. And that kind of like took me back to the like remembering that they were just kids and making me actually have like more sympathy for the characters than I would if they were adults acting like this. Cause then I'd be like, get over it. And because they're teenagers, like I completely understand. I remember when I had crushes on people in high school or like when I had my first boyfriend, and I thought it was the end of the world when we broke up and I fe- felt like I had to cry. <laughs> so I made an entire playlist of songs to cry. to. <laughs> like, I understand.
1: <laughs> making yourself cry.
0: I didn't cry and I was like, I'm supposed to cry and eat chocolate. That's what movie told me to do.
1: I used to do that too. But I think I realized I was just not crying because I didn't care because I was gay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to the comparison thing because I don't mean it in like a malicious way. I was actually trying to say the opposite of that. I know how it come across. of like. I think you should treat it in its own right and I understand why it has similar elements and I don't want us to talk about his husband but at the same time I don't think that there's or her husband I mean but at the same time I don't think that there's you're unfair for like noting that and I think of it as more like how society Hits, would pit their work against each other, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like, which is better? And only talk about Stranger Things when reviewing it. Like, I imagine that if we first made a film together, the Mod femme Productions, and then one of us went off to do a different thing, and another one of us went off to do a different thing, people might compare the two because we are in a collaboration or a collaborative mm-hmm. partnership. But was
0: she a part of Stranger Things, though? But their marriage is a
3: collaboration.
0: Yeah,
1: that's what I'm saying. Like, they're involved. So I wish, like, people would just view it as, like, yeah, they might have like similar things, but like we can look at them distinctly rather mm-hmm. than I'm going to pit them against each other and debate which is better and which is worse. If you guys went on to make something or another podcast, I wouldn't be offended about the comparisons because I feel like if you work together or have a friendship or a public relationship or anything like that, it's like it's going to happen. It's just annoying when people would be like, oh, she only did it because of him or she copied him or you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Back to the point about lesbian representation it was so fucking needlessly dramatic that it was so comical and then i was just like to be fair i don't know how i would have acted because i guess i was dramatic as a teenager like crushing over guys but like i said there was the queer element so i don't know if i was actually going all the way so i was like would i have been this dramatic if i knew what i wanted at a young age in high school like about a girl but I don't know if it would be entirely because I will say the one part I didn't like was like Kate and Simon, like Kate, well, I'll talk about Kate. Kate literally sacrifices herself almost because she distracts the baddie. And then while she's like holding, while Dean is holding Sam underwater, she hears Kate screaming, no, no. Like obviously she, Kate's going down and mm-hmm. she like still attempts to drown her. I was like, and then after they die, yeah. she's relatively cavalier about the whole thing. I mean, but Kate
0: said that when she when they were in the school and she was like, we sending her outside to die, which honestly, I would have done. Sorry. But when she was like, you're willing to let all of us die so you can save Sam. Like that was very obvious that that was the direction that um, Dina was willing to go go into. But I don't know that I've ever liked someone enough that I would watch all my friends die to
3: save them.
1: Well, that's what I mean. I was like, in that way, it was like a little bit. Uh, but I feel
3: much. like a straight couple would do that in a horror movie and nobody would think anything I would be like yeah that's what always happens
1: I guess I'm not saying it's because of I don't think it's because of the queerness but I just thought it was a bit much
0: in college Lee actually studied um comparative religion at NYU then she did a graduate school in Chicago and she earned a PhD in modern Jewish literature and seeing like the connection with like blood and religion and everything in this film with the curse and then like taking it back to 1666 and seeing like the puritan and that um her own background in religion i think makes it interesting that she was the person who directed this film that's so heavily about witches because i feel like there's a lot of different things in context to religion that are considered bad but witches is the one that i feel like people really lean into Villainizing and connecting with the devil even more so than other <laughs> things that are used in horror. Even warlocks, I feel like they they don't make like a this emphasis on like they made a pact with the devil to be a warlock, and that's why like no one even suspected men in the village did it.
3: Mm-hmm. Warlocks, sorry,
0: but they don't have a different term. They just say everyone is a witch, and all of them are made a pact with the devil, which I think is very gendered and
1: very sexist I mean there was a time where the witch as a term was gender neutral I think it was Wiccan I might be wrong it went through a period of being gender neutral and then it was more witch became more of like a female thing I think around the 1600s or no 1300s maybe more there's a turn there's a turn
0: I wonder if there was an intentional choice for it to both be female characters that were like teenagers that enacted the curse with their blood Um, especially, like, in Ziggy's case, because she seemed like she was just at, like, the age of getting a period.
1: That's what Creed says about, um, we've talked about it before, but Creed says that the onset of witch powers or whatever, in this case it's external, but it's still, like, the onset of spooky dookie oogie, what is it? Oogie boogie spookiness, um, comes with, comes with, uh, with, like, a period kind of scenario, um, and I guess in this sense, it's with uh, Dina and, and Sam. It's more like the nosebleed thing that's representative mm-hmm. of
0: that. I think she gets a nosebleed in the in seventy eight as well. But it's only female characters that we see like their blood drip onto something in the net. neck.
1: I think it's like a, definitely a gender thing there. Yeah, Creed also says stuff about slashers, and she says that they're representative of castration anxieties. And women are viewed as castrated and therefore they're constantly associated with excessively open bleeding wombs. Or the female victim might symbolize like a preemptive castration from the male perpetrator, like what she might do to him. So he's doing it to her. Hearing this from you now is like
3: re-solidifying what you were saying about like uh, this movie not being so male gazey in the same way the shower scene was. Because like you're listing all these things and I'm like, I don't see that that doesn't seem like like there like there is no final girl in the way that i'm expecting the like i don't know the castration anxiety isn't so, like sometimes it's so apparent or like the deaths are so sexual or it's like the stabbing or the like the the like way that people die is so porn-y and like and like keep going through the list sorry to interrupt you but like the more you go through it i'm like oh i wouldn't even even been able to tell you why it's not that way until like you're going through this thing and i'm like excluding things that normally fall under the like monstrous
1: feminine slasher tropes it's more of something that i want to raise in the second film so i'll wait but like i definitely have some thoughts about that but then i think the i think you're kind of right and also um creed also talks about specifically um rather than male slashers or she talks about the female castatrice, trees who's a like beautiful siren who lures men to their deaths and it's like throughout history there's like that kind of myth And I guess in this case, this was the one I kind of did see, just in the form of, like, Ruby Lane, that she, like, sings. Simon is constantly calling her hot. um, And she nearly kills him by, like, sitting on top of him. Um, However, in contrast to Creed's motivation, there's not, like, a rape-revenge-type motivation for Ruby Lane. She's just, like, one of the possessed people. But I thought that was, like, one way. But again, it wasn't done in, like, a very – crude, overtly sexualized way, in my opinion. Like I said, I think the consciousness of it, or the awareness of the genre that was going into making this made it so it didn't, it kind of sidestepped those for me, it was just more enjoyable.
2: One thing I really didn't like about this film was how they introduced Dina and Sam's relationship and like deliberately misled the audience to think that it was a boy, like with the unisex name, and then the camera, like looking for the her in the crowd, and settling on the guy that you, like the viewer would then assume is who she's talking about and you could like argue that it's trying to like challenge your assumptions about like who dina's ex is or who she has feelings for but it kind of gave off this sort of like surprise she's gay like it, it kind yeah. of felt a little bit forced they could have just been gay
1: Neela. you're our resident hater this episode <laughs> i'm gonna be
0: honest the entire time i knew that's the direction they were going in simply because i feel like a lot of teen shows have um definitely went with that approach of using like a gender neutral name and then it's like oh it's a girl
1: i just knew from the internet you cannot make queer content without everyone knowing beforehand so i was like i know it's a girl i was like quit playing i know it's a chick but yeah i guess you're right it was a little bit jazz hands she's gay but i didn't (laughs) i didn't dislike it I didn't dislike it. I thought it was alright. It's it's a corny thing. It's a corny piece of content, but I kind of enjoyed it for it. I think that's what made me laugh. Didn't take. I don't think it took itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. I think their relationship was like deliberately over the top as well.
0: I feel like I didn't like Sam until the last movie.
1: That's because it was giving like why are we sacrificing everything for a white girl throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Also an ex.
0: My favorite character of the entire. Franchise was her brother, and then my second favorite character was Kate. So when they killed Kate in the first movie, yeah. I was already fuming. I love the brother, and so I think that set the tone of me not liking Sam. I was like, just kill her possessed ass. Like I, I don't care.
2: It began as a prank, and ended in murder. Fantastic choice. I love this, this one. one. It's trash, lowbrow horror. It's for my stepdaughter. <sighs> That'll be $2.95. Thank you for shopping at B. Dalton's. And have a nice night. Fear
0: Street Part 2, 1978, begins with the shady Shadyside curse survivor, C. Berman, who Dina and Josh contacted in Part 1. After meticulously following her routine, Berman leaves a window crack by accident, which allows Dina and Josh to enter her home. Although initially panicked, Berman eventually agrees to help the siblings, and she restrains Sam in her bathroom and begins to tell them the story of the Camp Nightwing Massacre. The story centers around Cindy Merman, Ziggy, Nick Good, Tommy Slater, and how Ziggy's experience as an outsider of the camp and being bullied intersects with her sister Cindy's image of perfection. The story is a tragic tale of two sisters that sheds new light on the lore and How to Save Sam.
1: Hello? It's not over. You are our last chance. How do we end this? You have to go back. 1978, the first day of camp. Can we pick up on the the final girl thing? Because I thought that was really interesting. And I feel like it's very much like when I was watching this movie, my first note that I made on my phone was big final girl vibes. Because, I mean, there is like this whole like misdirection where they like make you think that it's one sister, but it's actually other sister who's the modern day 1994 survivor. So, I mean, so I I think there's again there's that sort of consciousness there. I was reading up on Carol J Clover's uh theories about fi- the final girl trope that she discusses in Men, Women, and Chainsaws. According to Carol J Clover, the main character is boyish or less feminine in a different way to her female counterparts. So I guess in this way we have Ziggy who says a line like "I love Stephen King and spiders," and I was like, "Give me off pick me back. Oh, is that okay. supposed to be
3: boyish? Okay.
1: <laughs> I guess in the way that stupid things become gendered as boyish, but I've I don't know. Yeah, 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 I feel you. The kind of victim hero, the fact that Ziggy is tor- tormented and even killed, but eventually survives. Um, prudish or unattainable, which is not quite Ziggy, but her sister, who we originally think is the final girl, but then also in comparison to the others, probably also because she seems younger, um, Ziggy's not, like, having sex. She just, like, kisses Nick good. Um, so she's, compared to, compared to the other campers who are, like, who are older and full on doing it, she's not, like, like that wild. Watchful to the point of paranoia and notices things that her friends ignore, like Ziggy realizes that something's up with nurse lane and whereas her sister ignores it so yeah there was that kind of conception of the final girl but then creed in monstrous feminine responds to clover's kind of assumption about our set of characterization of the final girl and argues that um whereas clover says that like the final girl is really masculine masculinized and that's kind of the only reason she survives and hence slashers resolve castration anxiety by making her masculine in quotes Creed instead says that the final girl is presented as threatening precisely because she threatens the masculinity by arousing castration anxiety. Um, And I'll just read Creed here. That just because she survives, she's not necessarily a pseudo-man, and that the avenging heroine of the slasher film is not the Freudian phallic woman whose image is designed to allay castration anxiety. But the deadly female cast astris, a female figure who exists in the discourse of myth and religion, um, whose image has been repressed in Freudian psychoanalytical theory, largely because it challenges Freud's view that man fears women because woman because she is castrated. So I think what she's getting at here is that she's not necessarily masculinized because she's made into a manly figure. She's saying that she's can retain her femininity in her own right. And she's a threatening force of castration anxiety. And I thought in that way, and of course, Creed's whole thing is like changing the Freudian narrative to say like men don't fear women because they are castrated. They fear women because they castrate. But I thought in that way, Ziggy is kind of Clover's final girl in the sense that she kind of fulfills those traits, whereas Dina seems to be more Creed's final girl. Because Dina upsets – by being, like, queer and everything, kind of upsets, like, the symbolic order or the symbolic placement of, like, men, if you're looking at it in a Freudian symbolic uh, sense, like Creed does. So, yeah, that was – I thought that was kind of interesting. I think they both are
3: outside of the, like, Final Girl definitions and binary. So, like, the whore, virgin, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. That was so apparent in – The situation with her sister and then, like, you know, the girl who smokes weed and fucking fucked her (laughs) boyfriend. Like, Like, that was so starkly put in my face that I almost, like, I was so focused on that binary that I wasn't really thinking about Ziggy at all, like as, as a part of that, or even considering her as a candidate for a final girl, because like, especially for like a slasher and a teen horror and a camp movie, like I'm looking for all these like checklist of things, right. I'm looking for the horror. I'm looking for the mm-hmm. virgin. I'm looking for like the man who's going to get possessed or like, uh, become power hungry. I'm, you know, I'm looking for like the faceless killer. Like these are the things that my brain either consciously as a horror movie fan are looking for or subconsciously expect for having watched so many slashers, um, especially like seventies and eighties era, like slashers Ziggy and Dina going back to what we were saying about like this, not fitting in so neatly with the tropes that we have become used to or look for is that like, I almost don't want to, I almost don't want to call her final girl because like, it 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 feels like it like cheapens the complexity of the character. Like just because I in my brain I want for everybody to fit neatly into these archetypes, the fact that they don't is I think what is good and surprising about at least the first two movies.
0: I would almost say um, rather than like thinking about like Ziggy or her sister as the final girl, um, Nick himself is kind of in a way like a final boy since he's like the goody two-shoes boy and- I'm intrigued. He's like a goody two-shoes boy. We see him like going out of his way to save Ziggy. He just seems so nice. He saves her in the beginning where they're saying they're gonna burn her life for being a witch. And we just are made to see him as like this good, perfect boy. He apparently is trying to save the the campers and is out there like risking his life and being brave so he in a way to me almost seems like a final boy until you figure out everything although i I, I pretty much guessed it earlier (laughs) than the third movie but um until you figure out like that he is sinister he's just paid in so much to be like the goody two-shoes boy who makes perfect grades and is from the perfect city who's very virginal and is doing everything to help this outcast that you know he's gonna survive the entire time
1: i did think like again i'm not offended by it because it's so conscious of it and i thought like it deliberately uses things like the prudish thing it it, like really encap. it like really hones in on that element of the final girl trope the most like I think, caniacal one, and like uses that as a form of misdirection so that we don't think it's Ziggy. But I then, when I was thinking about it, I was like, but Ziggy actually does fulfill his final goal tropes, but because they pick up the most like offensive ones, because Yanyak picks up the most like offensive or like overtly, like overt trope and then like, shoves it in your face, I thought was such like a good way to massage your expectations of what a final girl is and then make it something else. Um, in a way that flies completely under the radar of the trope but technically Ziggy does fit into it but yeah you don't you're just not as like conscious of it which I think that that was just the female director touch.
2: Okay if you're like stepping outside of the final girl trope maybe the reason that one of the like mini plot twists was that Ziggy is the final girl in the end was just for shock factor because Louisa you just said that Ziggy does hold some characteristics of the final girl so it's not like It's not wildly like unexpected that she turns out to be the person that survives. So then maybe it is really just for that like enjoyable plot twist that she turns out to be the final girl. Like was it really having some kind of like in-depth commentary on the final girl? I think it does.
0: And this is why. I think Cindy is the personification of everything people tell people in low income situations to do, which is like, keep your head down, stay out of trouble, don't do drugs, make all A's get like the perfect boyfriend and live like this very perfection life almost as if she was in Sunnyvale she basically does all the same things as them but obviously everyone still looks down on them because of where they're from but she is the personification showing that that pull yourself up by the bootstraps narrative is just simply untrue and that like no matter what you do if there is some sort of generational curse or trauma that is in your family it can weigh you down even if you do every single thing right. So even though she was doing everything to get out of Side, and she was like very convinced that this didn't even exist and she was completely in denial about it even though Ziggy and her had that huge blow up fight where she was like, Ziggy told her like you're never going to get out because of the curse and we're all going to die here like you're never going to leave she still was very hopeful that like, if I just do the right stuff, then I'll be able to get out of here and I'll be able to go to a good school and I'll never have to come back. And that just simply wasn't the case. Ziggy wasn't meant to survive. She survived because Nick used his magic because he was infatuated with her to bring
3: her back to life. Ziggy should should have died.
0: So
2: you think that it's because of his infatuation with her rather than any sort of like, it's not an extension of the commentary on like Cindy's storyline in terms of like, Putting herself out by the bootstraps.
0: We see Cindy um, go back and meet Nurse Lane to like confront the trauma that they've both been through. I do think in a way that she does go back and start to heal the generational trauma that she went through and the trauma that they shared. Um. Also, an interesting note about her, um, Christine Ziggy, is that uh, the routine of trauma, like how um, it can manifest in like OCD behavior or obsessions to like stick to a routine. So you don't have to have like a single moment to think about the trauma that you've been through. I thought that was a really interesting way to show that she was like very not in her, like in the space of like living her life and having a great time and being alive. Like it was a very good way to show that she was highly affected by her trauma and was just passing the time essentially until she died
1: that's interesting i thought it was more paranoia but i didn't i didn't think about it as like ocd to avoid constr- confronting your thoughts
3: the, the thing they did not hit that hit that hard enough from, the things she had seen all the children died so much happened not on camera in the second one that if you like really sat with it like she should not be functional like, you just shouldn't be like somebody who's, who's seen that, who's been through that lives alone. It's ridiculous. It's wild. Like she is the final, final girl and that she's even alive today making frozen mac and cheese.
0: She has to be in these confines in order to exist because like anything outside of that gives her a second to think about what she's been through. And so I thought that was a really interesting way. I mean, maybe it should have been a scene of her describing why she had those habits because they did come in her house and see all the clocks and alarms and timers. And they honestly did not seem that intrigued. But I thought that was a better way than like how I feel like in horror movies they typically do like the survivor of a movie is, like somewhere hunched up in a house curved over like speaking to themselves and like with dirty hair like I thought this was a much better way to show how trauma can vary in the way that people deal with it and I also think that this movie did a good job of doing, uh, female friendship and sisterhood as complicated. Cindy and Alice were very different. It didn't feel like they were competing against each other or like their tension with each other was anything to do with like a boy or this one being prettier, or this one being smarter. It was truly like, I miss you. And I, it sucks that you cut me out of your life.
3: I, I have a question about what people knew about the witch's curse. They built that toilet directly over her grave as if somebody had a blueprint.
1: Like, somebody must have known. Nick Good designed the town. I guess they want access to it, maybe.
0: Yeah, because they use those underground tunnels. We saw
1: him go in the tunnels from the mall. He goes down and writes the names.
2: Does he go through the
1: toilet? I don't know. No, there's an entrance in his house, Mila. I know, but why is there one? Why is
2: there one through the toilet? Why is there one in the toilet?
0: I mean, it wasn't like he could drop through the toilet, though. Like, that was a bit more complicated because it was like a hard fall. Like, you would be knocked out if you just jumped down from there.
3: The toilet felt like just for the sake of disrespect. And that's what really got to I me. Think he's <laughs> just like bad vibes through and through. So I feel like all all slasher movies, not slasher movies, but like all camp slasher movies are at the same goddamn camp. Every single <laughs> set. I'm like, I know this camp. I know exactly where the lake is. I know exactly where this turn in the woods is about to be. It cracks me up. There's never,
1: like, a hill. Like, where is the different terrain? It's all, like, the same. (laughs) We forgot to talk about in the first movie how um, Dina almost, she causes a car crash because she's jealous of her ex. Like, it was an accident because her nose was bleeding. She didn't mean to drop the thing and, like, make the car thing. But she was still, she was still, like, dumping, like, whatever the hell she was trying to dump out on them.
3: That was, if not murder, at least manslaughter. That was 100% manslaughter. But, like, they get past it relatively, like,
1: so quickly.
0: I think the adults definitely partake in it a bit because they feel like the people and. Shady side like write their own fate, and even though we do hear from like the shady side people that they believe that the witch exists, but for the Sunnyvale people, it feels like they kind of just say it in a mocking way, like how they um start saying that Ziggy was at the beginning of the second movie and we're like gonna burn her alive or whatever. Um, we get the feeling that it's more of like a, a joke to them, um, and they actually just think the shady side people are just like these trashy people who turn into killers and stuff based on their circumstances, rather than because there actually is a curse in the town. So I think I think it's more like everybody thinks this, and it's been passed down since the original. What happened in sixteen sixty six is that everyone who kind of like fell in the Seraphir side. Um, pretty much just got associated with like bad stuff.
2: When they first set up the shady side Sunnyvale rivalry, I thought that they were going to go in the direction of the whole town of Sunnyvale made a pact like whatever centuries ago, big conspiracy to basically always ensure their success, their legacy over Uh, That's too complicated, though.
3: I'm sorry,
0: what? There's
2: too many
3: people involved. No. It's like the Hannah Montana secret in the Hannah Montana movie.
0: You can't have that many people involved. It's got to be one family. There would be at least one person who, like, goes and tells.
2: No, because it it all serves them. Because they're living in this perfect suburban paradise. No. No.
1: Where, Where? No. No. It's a commentary on the media. It's commentary on media, the media taking a story of like, yeah, the media take the story and report things as the cops tell it. And it's like skewing it and blaming the disenfranchised or impoverished In side of part. town on their own antics. In the whole thing, we always see like flashes to news reports of like, shady siders at it again. Because if you think about it, it's. The, the violence has never been perpetrated by anybody in
3: Sunnydale. Just like there are serial killer hella serial killers in Shady Side and everybody's like, Well that's what happened. Like yeah. when you poor communities always harm themselves, blah 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 blah. Like there wasn't there was no incentive for them to suspect that their troubles were like because... for the, at least for outsiders to suspect that like their troubles were because of Sunnydale. Like anybody looking at it from the outside in would have been like, oh yeah, just shitty stuff happens in that town because there's are shitty people who live there who, I don't know, go crazy because they live in poverty or whatever. I think
0: it worked better that it was just the Good Family. One, I wonder if they took that name from like the S- Salem Witch Trials.
3: Okay, Good is Evil really sent me to another dimension. <laughs> I was like, I not a three movie setup for Good is Evil. <laughs> no. But, um,
0: <laughs> I think it worked better that it was like one family because if you think
2: about it, they guys. Much I just put said themselves... I thought that's what it was happening. Not that I think it's better. Please,
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're like garbage opinion, trash.
3: <laughs> it never would have worked, Mila. Think about it.
1: Because it's
0: one family, and they put themselves in all the positions of power because, like, his cousin is like the mayor. He's the sheriff. Someone they own like hella businesses in the town. And so it makes more sense that it's them because they're they are in every position of power so they can pretty much frame the narrative however they want to make people think it is how it is, which it says is also very indicative of the current government.
3: Do we feel like this is an oogie boogie cop out for it to be one family? No.
0: I don't. I don't. That kind of covers a lot of different things that I think are problems in society, like nepotism which is a huge thing. There are certain industries that are like extremely difficult, the film industry being one of them, to break into if you don't have family in it. Um, So this one family housing all of this power isn't hard to believe. Like, um, I think it would be harder to believe that everyone in the the entire town would go along with it. No offense to me, Yeah,
2: I disagree strongly. They're willfully
1: ignorant.
0: I think a lot of people don't like to think of themselves as active villains. This includes people who are actively racist, don't like to think of themselves as actively a villain. They're like, I'm not racist. I just think that XXX thing. Or I'm not a typical Trump supporter. I just think that XXX thing. And I think that is indicative of, the lot of a lot of people in Sunnyvale. But I don't think they would enjoy actively being the villain. They like being passively the villain that's a part of a bigger system. I was
3: about to say, like, I think that the evil isn't like passively accepting your own privilege Mm -hmm, and not like looking deeper into like why like with no explicable reason like why their town was so much more successful do not let me get into deep discourse but but like i think that like a like this is (laughs) go on this is like this is like (laughs) the perspective that i like a lot of folks in privilege take of like if people are suffering, it's because of their own choices. And I don't need to think very deeply about what those choices are that led them to that point. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's true of like folks with addiction or folks in poverty or folks who have like STIs, like every, like, no, like looking at the system would be too difficult. So it's just like putting the blame on the individual or putting the blame on like the place. And especially because they in Sunnydale cannot see what hand they possibly could have had in it. Just that these people hate them because
1: they're doing better, right? It's definitely an excellent class metaphor.
0: Even like the the way that the schools look, like the way that the football is field is super nice, and they have better uniforms, and everyone has like the ribbons and bows at the at Sunnyvale when they go to the game, versus they kind of have like those beat up band uniforms. The bus is kind of raggedy. Um, they don't have individual gatorades. <laughs> they all
2: have, have that <laughs> one big thing
3: the individual gatorades
0: luxury that's Peak
2: luxury <laughs> so I, I think um that in itself
0: also is like a sort of a, a way of um expressing that um funding and support also affects the plight of how things turn out and people don't consider that like a lot of universities don't consider that when they want people to have twenty one hundred SAT scores and uh, fifty five extracurricular activities. Some schools don't even have extracurricular activities. I mean, it, it's it's a very biased system that always is going to benefit people who have more opportunities. If your school has horseback riding and fencing and badminton <laughs> and fifteen yeah. languages to learn, of course you're going to have a higher chance of getting to college than a school where they don't even have a, a, a foreign language options and the only thing is debate taught by a teacher who acts like Hilary Swank from that movie, <laughs> like, of words.
3: You're gonna hang, witch. Before the witch's final breath, she found a way to cheat from death. By cutting off her wick and wind, she kept her grip upon her land. She reaches out beyond the grave to make good men for you to She'll steal your blood, she'll take your hand, she'll fall with you until you're dead. <laughs> String her up. <laughs> oh, stop, stop, stop it, stop it!
2: First Street, Part 3, 1666, picks up from the 1978 scene of Dina reattaching the dismembered hand to the body of Seraphir. Dina is thrust back in time in a vision to 1666 and the body of the witch. From her experience, Dina learns the truth about the Shadyside curse and what happened to Seraphir. Dina and Josh inform Ziggy of the truth, and Josh enlists the help of Martin, a man he helped at the police station in Part 1, to help them end the curse once and for all. Save Sam and give Shady Side a chance at a better future.
0: Sarah,
3: the devil has come to feast on our misdeeds.
2: And his darkness grows within each of us.
1: Sarah, fear—you know nothing good comes from those what's after sundown. <sighs> what was that? The sort of generational trauma thing, really comes to light a lot in this last film in particular. I wish they had kind of divided it into two more. I feel like it should have been a part three and then a part four finale type thing and like spent more time on the flashback because it did seem kind of weird or suddenly leapt back into time. But I do like the fact that I think the whole thing works really well as a sort of metaphoric commentary on like the corrupt route of policing if you're looking at it like that just because of like If we had started with 1666, obviously you wouldn't be introduced to um, Solomon, I think. Is the same Solomon? I Mm -hmm. can't remember. The original good is not a cop. Um, But I guess because we're introduced to that whole family through Nick, who is a cop, I think the alignment is there from the get once you finish the series. And I thought it worked really well as a metaphor. I think the idea of like cop family being bad for generations back, or that, sorry, that family which has cops in it was bad for generations back, really ties into the sort of ancestral guilt that, like, white Americans have. Do
0: they have guilt?
1: (laughs) You know how people say, like, how, oh, my father, like, yeah, my grandfather, whoever was in, great-grandfather? Great-grandfather is in the Confederate Army or whoever, or my ancestors in the Confederate Army, but um, I'm not, we're not, like, we're not racist anymore, and there's, like, no awareness of how they could still be problematic or still benefiting from what their mm-hmm. forefathers did before them. Yeah, because Good actually is like a sheriff and he's like playing the moral character and the, the mayor as well.
3: The cop point, yes, absolutely for sure. But I thought like this was like 100% a settler colonialism story. Mm-hmm. And like his, like every, like while he was super evil and made a deal with the devil, everybody in that town was there with for the same purpose of like having freedom, power and land. Like it, that, when it came down to it, that is all that man's motivation was, and that, and and we're sitting here thinking about like how ridiculous it is that like you think it's worth it for people, dozens, hundreds of people to die regularly for you to maintain that legacy. But he's ta- like the part that struck me the most in in this movie, and why it was like probably the one that like scared me the most is when all the children die, yeah. and you're like, fuck that's your whole society. If y'all can't make more kids, that settlement is done. Everything that you worked for is done if you don't have, like, a second generation to pass this on to. And then I'm like, why am I feeling bad for colonizers right now? Like, yes, children are dead and, like, that is, like, shocking to me and, like, unsettling. But, like, the thing that unsettled me is, like, is also my settler colonial impulse of, like, what what is life about if not passing something on what is life about if not like creating generational wealth and then i had to like sit with myself and really reckon with like why am i thinking that way that's so fucked up and like his motivations were fucked up but every the, everybody's reactions and in particularly the men's reactions to their children dying is like well what was it all for i did this to like to so that fucking 300 years and down the line in the 90s that my kids live in a town that's better than the next town it makes everything seem so silly and it like trivializes like life and death situations because you're not thinking about the life that was just lost you're thinking about like the quality of life of the people who would have come after you and i think like that is what fucked me up the most about the the last one it's because it's like sitting with like how icky that motivation was not just for the good family but for everybody involved and i think that's why the also the casting situation was weird because like we have completely we've done a settler colonialism narrative completely devoid of race or like colorblind Mm -hmm. cast this situation which was like super jarring to see like just black people walking around and i understand that it was not like real like it was her like vision of what happened or like her projection of what happened or whatever directorial choice that was but I was like if this was not on purpose I think we really need to actually like sit and think about like what this
1: section of the trilogy has done. I don't think it would be wrong to be like to say it could necessarily be both like starting with a cop family and seeing what structures are yeah. they still upholding and then going back in time and being like it's like a sort of settlist or cap a land grab capitalist kind of narrative that's being upheld but that's kind of why i liked how it started with a cop because like not taking a modern day debate that americans have and then broadening it and showing the roots of the problem i guess i hadn't really thought about like um i was kind of thinking like it, it's weird that um sarah fear if you're going to make that sort of metaphor of like more policing if you're making it about corrupt policing like do you think that the sort of corruption of police is more about a sort of patriarchal domination than it is race well put. Po- well, police is about the protection of
3: property. So these things are like very much inter- of private property and so like private property exists because of settler colonialism that's the only reason private property exists in america and like the police serve to protect property property originally being like slaves and like police being slave catchers but like Mm -hmm, modern day policing is to protect the property of a city or a neighborhood or like a piece of land it's it's the exact same like purpose and the way that like the good family are like cops in the mayor because they are protecting themselves They are the owners of the land, like they're protecting their own private property.
0: I don't know that like when I saw the kids murdered in the church, I thought about like the bloodline. I think I just honestly thought about how vicious it was for their eyes and stuff to be cut out. Like that was a very Mm -hmm. jarring scene, especially because like in the second film, we didn't see any of like the murdered children's bodies. And so as an audience, I thought yeah. that we were definitely going to be shielded from dead children. Um, I don't know if any of the actors were actually kids because obviously like the guy who played her brother was is like 19 in real life. And I think Sadie Sink is also like 18 or 19 years old. So I'm not sure if they're actually kids. Um, I'm sure some of the people in there were because I think there were smaller kids in them. I think using the same actors compromised the 1666 aspect of this story. Um, it, like, takes the viewer out of it and makes it feel like we're watching, like, a play production of what happened rather than, like, seeing the real horror and trauma of what happened during that time period. Like, that was a rough period in history. It felt like um, I was just watching a play of The Crucible. It, it was very Crucible. I was like, well, if we're going to make, like, so many horror films about like black people being going through racism or black people in the 60s being terrorized by white neighbors or a black woman from modern day being put in slavery can we not have a realistic horror in 1666 with like white people i thought that was odd um this isn't any slight to like the writer or director because i don't think they meant it that way i think they just thought it would like translate better to use the same actors but i think it was actually a big mistake sorry it just it just really took me out of it. The entire time I was watching it, I was literally calling Sarah's character Dina. I was like, "Why is the cop trying to date yeah. Dina?" Like, it just was not. It wasn't a good choice.
3: Also, like Dina was so racially ambiguous as well. Like, just through
0: all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, her and her brother being related was enough of a stretch to me.
1: I was literally thinking that. I was like, "Do they have different?" But I fathers? do believe
0: that uh, the actor and her both have Portuguese descent.
1: That aside, the,
3: like, are we this the witch? It's like Sarah is white, but it's a bit more complicated
0: to put her as uh, Dina when you have a white man like cutting yeah. off her
3: hand and using her for power. But also the visual effects where they would like flash between when it was like her or like, you know, she she looks enough like that white woman that it's like, OK, but you made an intentional enough casting choice that we can have this like visual trick of the eye. So it, it it's like. I don't know it it felt like a weird use of that actress's body in that instance like that she looks kind of like the other woman and but we're not acknowledging that she's like mixed or whatever i
0: also made a point in my notes that said i thought it was strange that dina and josh had to be the ones to break this curse that was like started by white people It was like a white woman whose curse it was straight
3: up if they are not the if they are not the descendants of those people it makes no fucking sense (laughs) sam
0: is also like a white woman and like we never see if sam actually looks like the other girl who was involved with sarah in the relationship we never saw that we just know how sarah looks and we know that sarah was actually white so i was like why do we have two children who are i believe afro-brazilian um breaking a white curse i don't really know
1: this is what i i think i was trying to say like it's almost like if you were making a commentary on like the modern day structures right like that harm people like working class people black people specifically people of color more broadly in america and then like if that's what the first film is doing and then you go back in time to find the sort of root or like when it was kind of starting how this curse began if you're looking at it as a metaphoric curse um in quotes and it was kind of like almost using Dina to sh- to like make a link or being like this is what's harming Black people or this community more broadly shady side like making that more explicit link, but it is I thought it was weird and it kind of I was like are they doing that so it's not just like patriarchal like a commentary but also like a racist commentary. I think on, like, it was just structures? honestly a
0: bad filmmaking choice. I do think she made a lot of great choices with this trilogy. I really liked it. I think this was just a bad choice. I think they honestly just were like what if we use the same actors in the past and present? The audience would love it. And it's like, no, it just, it really takes you out of it. And like, it just looks like a, a high school production of like the crucible with the twist. And I was like, I'm just not feeling
3: it. But it, it's fucked up when high schools do it too. Like you can, you have to reckon with racialized bodies when you put them in a time period. You just have to, like, I don't give a shit about what Hamilton did for y'all. You, you actually like, can't just be like casting whoever the fuck. It it's, it's giving like early 2000s post-racial like we, like if we don't think about it, we've overcome, it, we've overcome it and it's like but we're talking about the origins of this country. So like let's be real.
0: But I don't want to necessarily say like I disagree with like racially blind casting. I don't I don't agree with like white actors playing people of color, but I do think it's like a very limiting way with like actors who are people of color to only be able to portray like, uh if you want to be a character in the 1800s or like the 1600s you got to be the slave or something i feel like that is very limiting
3: well no i think i think that's fine if your story is not like about race i don't know like for this one i don't think Mm -hmm. it was meant to be about race so i understand why they thought it was okay but like i picked up on so many like implications that just got like dropped or like fell through the cracks that I'm like it just looks messy like unless it's tight 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 then I'm fine with the casting like whatever I don't mm-hmm. really care but like you, it needs to be like it can't be careless I guess like I think there needs to be thought put into it if you're going to do colorblind casting
1: do you think it would have been more like made more sense if like Sarah Fier had originally been a black woman or like a black victim of the Salem i don't i don't child? agree no i just i just don't think it
3: needed to be those siblings job to
0: break the curse i don't think it needed to be the those siblings job to break the curse i don't feel like it benefited everyone and like dina can go to college now and they can all leave the town happily ever after whatever her and sam can go eat burgers on somebody's grave uh, please it just wasn't <laughs> it didn't land the way that like it was meant to I think because we didn't get to see enough of them as a couple that I just didn't give a shit I was like yeah. you can go find a new girlfriend if it was a heterosexual couple I feel like that would have been torturous to watch and the ratings for this would have been significantly lower
1: that is like the tr- like a true definition of queer bait though which is so sad <laughs> like but, like, queer
3: baiting is like, is, like, in the end, they're maybe not gay. This is just a good old rainbow capitalism.
1: I mean it literally is, in, like, you are baiting the queers to come watch this thing. They're
0: defying a lot more odds. Like, their love for each other seemed a lot more genuine just because she has to go against, like, her conservative shitty mom to be with Dina. Like, it just seemed a lot more real. And if it was just, like, my parents hate you because you're poor mm. and it was a heterosexual thing, it would have just been boring.
1: Yeah. It did make it more compelling
0: in the 1666 part, I guess it's the only part where we get, like, a sex scene.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, they fuck. Um, Forgot about that.
0: I was like, I don't know why y'all want to do it in the woods when everybody in the woods. I know. That was silly.
1: They went to the most bait place to do it out in the open. In a clearing in the <laughs> woods when
0: all everybody else was in the woods. But I do think uh, the fact that, like, the the guy associating with them with being witches because they weren't. I couldn't tell if he was saying they were witches because they were gay or because he was angry because he wanted to be with Sam.
3: I feel like it was a mixture of both. Wait, can we talk about the the witch hunt aspect for a second? Like, it is, like, maybe perhaps very basic to, like, I don't know, really unpack this on this, like, feminism podcast. But, like, <laughs> it was, like, it was just so, I, I, like, I haven't... I don't know i know men's egos are fragile but like the projection the like fear of rejection mm-hmm. the insecurity it was just like and it wasn't it wasn't just that guy it was like any once they decided there was a witch or they decided somebody but either way they knew somebody was being gay regardless of if there was a witch or not a witch or or, or, or magic was happening or, or who was conducting the it there foot. was like there was like gayness aflo- and it's like it's all foot. of these men <laughs> Yes, all of these men had this reaction like they were all being rejected by these women like the fact that they were gay. Yeah, that is that or that they didn't want men at all. All of them were like, Yeah <laughs> like they're, they're wrong. They're like <laughs> of oh, the devil because they they like it seemed like they were all projecting this rejection that this one man was having. And it was like the most bizarre and then I imagine that's exactly how it happened. Like I imagine that's how like the, the witch trials really went down, that it was like this mass psychosis yeah. of male ego, but like it was just so wild to watch unfold because I'm like in every single instance, they are more focused on the fake danger than the real danger. Yeah. I
0: agree.
1: That's it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think um,
0: this movie did really well, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but I'm going to lean towards intentionally, is show how uh, gendered the hatred towards uh, witches and magic is. Um, there are even like guys who you'll meet on like a dating app and they'll be like, no astrology hoes in their bio. <laughs> and,
1: um yeah, I was like, what is it yes! to you? Yeah, like, who am I hurting? Who am I hurting? They're fucking witch hunting in 2021. I'm tired.
0: <laughs> I've never seen a girl say like, I won't date a guy who likes astrology or I won't date a guy who collects crystals or something.
1: What was that Twitter discourse though? That was like, you said like, if you date a guy who eats dessert, like we're not.
3: <laughs> <laughs> why w- Why would you as a man know your own birth chart? That outcry is just so
0: gendered. Like for astrology and crystals and tarot. Like I know guys who do tarot and no one cares. Like in fact, women always think it's super cool that they do it. I was looking, thinking back to like, um, I'm going to say the English name for it. Like Hammer of Witches, which was uh, written by Catholic clergymen in the 1400s but in the book it basically says like you have to like torture witches and then the only way to destroy them is to kill them through murder and burn them alive and all these like very intense torturous ways for witches but there's nothing in the book about men being doing magic and like the way that when they said there were witches in the town no one even remotely considered the man in the woods who hate everybody
2: you know who was a magician jesus mila
1: I don't know how, how it's going to be, like, us might be calling Jesus a magician is a take.
0: But the way that they didn't consider Solomon, um, and he, like, left the settlement. He's the least attached to any of them. He dislikes several people in the town, and he acts like a weirdo and only talks to Dina. And he lost his children, and no one ever suspected anything about him. And we learn in, like, the first half of the movie that he's the one who had uh, contact with the widow, Where they went to go get the mystical berries and there's all this lore around her being a witch and we learned that he did it and no one gave a shit that he went to go see her to like try to heal his wife using witchcraft
3: they didn't even suspect the actual witch in the woods they sooner suspected the lesbians and the confirmed lady who lives in a
0: cave and then when she goes back and sees the lady murdered she did have this book and she did tell her not to touch it but we also don't get the i don't get the vibe that she was vibing with the book either but the fact that he goes and kills her and takes the book is like, I, I have in my notes, <laughs> verbatim. A white man's desire for power causing the death of multiple women and a curse that affects descendants of people from Shadyside for hundreds of years is extremely on brand. Story checks out. She comes back with a severed hand, which I actually saw online in... An article by Scott White um, that severed hands often demonstrate a loss of humanity through criminal or monstrous actions or the fragility of the human body or any unsafe situation can lead to hands being severed and once hands are severed, they can contaminate people and objects, which is like the hand being the source of the curse and everything. But she comes back with like a severed hand, so they know she had to get in a fight with someone, but like no one in the town cared. Um, They didn't even ask for her perspective, and I thought that was very indicative of how like you can very physically see that something is wrong with people in society sometimes, or like they've been wronged, but people don't care because they know who did it. Like, I think in their mind, they knew that one of the men in the town had probably cut off her hand. And because one of the men cut off her hand, they didn't care. Like, either way, they were going to kill Dina. If she, if she told them that Solomon had a cave under the ground and did everything, they were still going to kill her. So she would have nothing to gain by that situation. And the way that she didn't tell, and she was like, I'm just going to wait for the truth to be uncovered. Um, and I'm just going to haunt you and your family and this curse is going to live forever through you um, rather than her even remotely try to have people hear her out I thought was very indicative of how
2: things typically go this is backtracking a little bit but going back to that whole like white men's affront to astrology Zeba, you mentioned you were talking about how like in these films well in the 1666 part the conspiracy around them being witches is tied to their like egos and the fact that Solomon is attracted to Dina and she rejects him and then all of these men have this kind of hysteria around yeah they're witches they're fucking gay witches let's burn them (laughs) and I feel like although (laughs) although I'm sure there is an element of that with like modern dating in terms of what men think of astrology and women who really like astrology it's definitely more like they use rationality and like science as a way of to like assert some kind of superiority on women it's not like oh you have an opinion different to mine my opinion is different it's like mine is the one that's stripped of any kind of emotion and subjectivity mine is just the way of being and the fact and yours is this weird like yeah oh you believe in that that's insane
1: it's like goes back to like enlightenment era times where it's like I'm not gonna respect what you believe in if it can't be seen empirically and studied and categorized. It's like, well, then it must not be valid if you can't prove it, like physically and tangibly.
0: There's a article about this that talks about how, like, um, like called like "Believe the Teenage Girl" about how like teenage girls often predict, predict trends before they become a trend that people discredit it until like men pick up on it, like how teen, teenage girls like the Beatles mm-hmm. and all those rock and roll bands before they amass like giant followings of men but now like the people who control the narrative are like adult men who are like do you name five songs by the beatles or take off that shirt we need to mention the accents what the fuck they were i feel like they should have just not did the accents all together
2: they should have been american
0: my thing was more like the costume design looked comical it really just looked like they kind of threw stuff together and it kind of sucked because, like, the rest of the film, I think they did great 90s outfits. Like, I would wear what Kate was wearing. They had cute clothes. It was yeah. nice. But um 1666 mm. looked like they literally just took um an apron from the kitchen and said, throw on a skirt and, like, kind of a blouse and... and Rub some dirt on their face. And you're a pilgrim. <laughs> also, like, the hairstyles. Like, people having their hair down. No type of bonnet. I was like Having their hair down! <laughs>
3: I was like, there's no way that you in this hot sun working all day have a strand of hair in your face. That's ridiculous. I was so mad. I'm like, it's not sexy. It's not cute. It's not historically accurate. The accents were like a strong choice.
2: I don't understand. It was literally the worst thing, the worst thing they could have done. Everyone had a different variation of the Irish accent. It was the most confusing, disorientating effect.
3: It made me a bit confused as to, like, why the time jump was so drat. Like, why the middle one was in the 70s. Because it's, like, the it was so jarring. It was so jarring. I'm, like, I didn't need to be even in this. It, like I feel like it would have even been different if it was, like, the 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have, like like, then at least I know, okay, we have a different sort of speech pattern dialect for every film. But to jump all the way to 1666 and then to have the accents, I'm, like
0: whoa 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 i felt like 60 94 and 78 were too close
1: together like not even the fashion changed enough i thought it was again kind of a good nod to issues discourse happening now being like when ziggy older ziggy called. she says she called good she called the cop because she thought they were in danger and it's just kind of like indicative of like White women will call the cops because they believe that they'll still protect us. Granted, she had
0: like sort of a romantic relationship with him.
1: Yeah, I did think the metaphor works more broadly. Uh, also, like when the other cops show up at the mall and like the final showdown, they are like it, it kind of tackles that thing of like no such thing as a good cop because it's like it doesn't really matter who they are, or why they're there. They actually don't know why they're there, which they don't know what they're working mm-hmm. for. But they still die nonetheless because they are obviously working for the wrong side. They're working for good. Who's corrupt?
0: I think that this film works really well with the teen horror episode that we did because the adults are all useless in this movie. And like the way that we don't see like <laughs> anyone's parents except for like Sam's. And even like when they do the the ultimate flashback to 1666, like their parents literally are like, yeah, you're gonna get hung tomorrow. I also have like a note written where I said, are women in horror films actually, are there any true examples of monstrous women in horror? Or are they framed that way by men who use them to cover their crimes or as sacrifices? For example, Jennifer's Bodies, Teeth, Rosemary's Baby, and the Fear Street Trilogy.
2: Isn't that kind of what the monstrous feminine is?
1: Yeah, it's like coded. But also going back to your teen horror thing, they also have Alice who is like her, who has self-harm. And we've talked about like self-harm being prevalent in teen horror.
0: I feel like I have not seen a good representation of self-harm in anything ever um, because I feel like they always like show it and then like completely forget. And like that's an extremely triggering topic as well and so I'm like "Ah, I feel like you might want to spend like a little bit more time on that. She doesn't get to talk to Alice about what is causing her to self-harm. It's just like they're on this adventure and she's like oh not also self-harm.
3: Either unpack it or don't show it.
0: Also in addition to that I think it's Worth noting that Sam is the only person who can get out. Sam is like a white girl who, I mean, there's nothing that sticks out about her, and she has like nothing, no other, nothing stigmatizing her other than like her sexuality that she at times represses, and we don't see her accept it into the end. Um, she's able to move between these worlds seamlessly, and um, I think that's something that people should probably think about. Because I feel like sometimes because the way that patriarchy works, it makes people very unaware of how systems of oppression stack onto each other. And also how like being a woman does not necessarily exclude you from benefiting from white supremacy or being a queer woman if you're white.
1: Or class. Yeah, class.
0: And that is why Sam is the one who can move out of Shadyside and be accepted by her peers. And the only thing that she had to do was date a frat boy. Um, So I think that definitely shows how um, being a white woman makes it very easy to benefit from white supremacy. And
1: I think what you said about like the sort of heterosexual privilege or the appearing heterosexual privilege when she couples up with uh, Peter in Sunnyvale is what kind of maybe slips under the radar. I didn't think about the curse, really. But I guess you could look at like if there's prevailing oppressive structures, how that works to create stigma in between across oppressed groups um for certain other things but um i did think from mordina's perspective looking at um sam with her boyfriend it did seem a little like potentially biphobic um just in the sense that i feel like in a lot of like queer storylines it's like when she gets in a man with a man it means she's repressing her sexuality and that's what pisses off like like, betraying them yeah betraying i was just like okay I mean, I think in this instance, it could also just be Dina being super jealous, but I think maybe going forward, there should be a little bit more care in that kind of narrative to either say that she is actually just a lesbian, or maybe she is bisexual, but she's still not being all honest with her feelings. You know what I mean? Not that we have to have a label. I just mean that sometimes the implications could be problematic if it's not explained a little bit.
0: And I also feel like this movie is a great example of systems of oppression cannot be reformed. They have to be destroyed. How do you reform a curse that is enacted to make a white family rich forever and benefit all the white people in this town? That can't be reformed. It has to be destroyed. And that's the same way that systems of oppression work in society today. They can't be reformed. You can't reform things that were set up to hurt people from a certain background, race, sexuality. They have to be destroyed.
1: It is somewhat disappointing that i think i think the commentary that they made or the implication that they made about like racist race and policing is there enough to the point where it makes a better commentary than like the direction that horror noir made by black people is going right now after get out everyone thinks that we need to make um race a category of horror and i think that ironically i prefer something like this where it's like you still have an oogie boogie horror element um, as canonical in the genre, but race is explored. And I thought it was kind of disappointing that horror noir now is kind of going on the route of, like, trauma porn and and stuff, like, with Mm -hmm. them and everything. And uh, journalist uh, Jason Okundaye for The Guardian was, like, kind of writing on this topic as well, if you wanted to read more in depth about that, about whether horror is a good space for... the horror as a genre is a good space for exploring racial issues and how to do it and ironically this film is like kind of more of how to do it for me than some of those other ones that are coming out particularly the the article was a review of them that just came out um so yeah and it, yeah it, it's quite interesting um so i think like although race is sidelined as an issue i'm kind of grateful for it because of the team production team and who's writing it and who's working on it and also still, it's poignant enough and better than some of the other commentaries I've seen that try to intersect horror and race. okonde quotes another author, um, Brandon Taylor, who I think eloquently breaks down why if it's happening in real life and it's still happening in real life, horror might not be the genre for it. And I think he says something like, if horror is about unconscious Freudian fears, then, and I quote, How can the specter of racism and racial violence be reduced to the arena arena of fear, quote, when it persists as a force for violence and social death against black audiences who are watching? And he goes on to say, the imagination cannot make space for racism as an unrealized fear through the horror genre when these acts of violence are realized daily. And it's kind of like, basically, if horror is kind of dealing with unconscious, like coded, like we're kind of talking about monstrous feminine presences, it's very jarring to see it be overt racist violence as if it's pre- and it presenting that as an unconscious fear when it's like no it's very conscious it's very here like you know it's very much happening bringing back to this film i'm just happy that they didn't do it so on the nose basically yeah <laughs> i think it's more powerful not done on the nose
0: this is a good trilogy although they could have really did better for the 1666 sequence but i really liked it i enjoyed it
1: Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to be our next Witch of the Week. We also have a TikTok. Follow us at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out.